Radio Gag, the Gays Against Guns show. Prepare to gag, yeah. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our new time slot. We are Radio Gag, the weekly Gays Against Guns show. This show is our weekly update on how to end the horror that is the American gun violence epidemic. I'm Sarah Germain Lilly. And I'm Josh Shaden. For those of you who are new to the program, we're an inclusive direct action group of LGBTQ people and their allies committed to nonviolently breaking the gun industry's chain of death. That means investors, manufacturers, uh, the NRA, and politicians who block safer gun laws. This is Gun Violence Survivors Week, and our show includes two special features, an interview with Antonius Wiriajaya, former Fulbright scholar and CUNY professor, and Jennifer Barry Haas, author of Grace Will Lead Us Home, the story of the aftermath of the Mother Emanuel Church killings of nine Americans in Charleston, South Carolina. We are thrilled to have you join us this week. Uh, first off, Sarah and I wanted to encourage you, our listeners, to explore the GAG Human Beings Project, which features and honors the lives of those lost to gun violence. The project was created by our dear friend Sylvan and is committed to honoring with respect and care the many lives taken by gun violence. Profiles are developed from media sources. Uh, where possible, these profiles reflect the words shared by their loved ones and friends in remembrance of an individual killed by gun violence. We encourage you to visit this page to learn more. On Facebook, you can find it at Gag Human Beings. That's G-A-G Human Beings. Uh, and it's also connected to the uh, Gays Against Guns Facebook page. And as always, Gays Against Guns urges you to have the courage to resolve conflicts without weapons and to act responsibly by storing weapons unloaded and locked up and storing ammunition separately. The suicide hotline is 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-8255. And now for our Survivor's Week special feature, our first guest, Antonius Wiriajaya. Antonius is a professor, a Fulbright scholar, an activist with Gays Against Guns and other gun violence prevention groups. And we almost lost him as he was a block away from his home, then in Brooklyn, New York. Listeners, I'm so excited today to be speaking with Antonius Wiriajaya. He is a university teacher and he's a survivor and he's going to tell us his story. How are you today, Antonius? Uh, thanks for having me. I'm okay today. How are you doing, Sarah? I'm doing all right. So what can you tell us about what happened to you? It was July 5th, 2013. It was the day after Independence Day. And it was around one or two in the afternoon. And I was going to go help my friend move. He, um, they actually uh, messaged me and said, hey, we're ready for you. So come on over. And yeah, I remember it was a 90 degree day. So it was really, really warm. 
friends and I decided not to take my bike to visit uh, the people I was going to help move. And I walked to the subway and I remember hearing what I thought were fireworks one block away from my house. But then when I looked down, I realized I was bleeding from my chest. Um, I learned after uh, that a man had been shooting at a pregnant woman in front of me. That woman was on a stoop and she had fallen. And I remember seeing her fall, actually. I don't remember too much except for I remember this uh, woman falling and then the bullet entering my chest. And I remember um, the incredible pain that it felt. But um, I also remember that he still had his gun and he was still shooting and another bullet passed me. So I ducked for cover and um, putting my hand on my chest so I don't bleed out. And um, I remember looking up at the sky and seeing how beautiful it was. You know, it was a really beautiful sunny day and thinking like, I don't, think I'm going to make this because it, it, it's the blood's just coming out too fast. Um, a few of my neighbors came by to help out. So one woman came over and she just kept me awake. She asked me all these questions. And another one, a barber named John D. Rent, he actually came and he put his hand on top of my hand to make sure I don't bleed out. And then a third neighbor he um, asked me where I lived, and I told him, and he ran over to tell my roommates. Um, the ambulance came, and uh, I was put into a four-day coma, and I woke up. And I have to tell you, I was the happiest person in the world. <laughs> <laughs> it was the happiest moment in my life came from the worst moment in my life. And... It took me about 17 months to recover, and I am alive today. It's been about, it's going to be eight years this July. I feel this mix of emotions because, like I said, it was the worst experience I ever had in my life. But out of that horrible experience, I also felt the most incredible joy I've ever felt. And maybe it was the morphine talking because I was in a four-day coma and I woke up. But I really don't know how to describe the pure ecstasy I felt when I figured um, when I woke up and I realized I was alive. So, can you tell us uh, your thoughts about healing and trauma? I will say that after surviving, I mean, physically, I was actually doing really well. Um, I was really grateful that one of my doctors. He actually uh, noticed something about me, and I didn't uh, tell anybody because I thought everybody was experiencing the same thing I was experiencing. Um, I kept hearing gunshots, and I kept hearing something I, I couldn't describe. And I ended up um, being given a psychiatric evaluation and was diagnosed with PTSD. You know, PTSD isn't something can really... Um, I mean, it comes it comes back, and it has come back for me 
especially, unfortunately, about a year after my own shooting. Um, remember the barber I told you about, John? Uh, we met up. I actually got to meet him, and we talked, and then we exchanged numbers, and I called him a couple of times. Um, the last phone call I gave him, I asked him what he was doing because I saw that there was this job that he could possibly do in Brooklyn. I remember him telling me that he was taking care of his nephew because his brother had died from um, cancer. And I said, well, you could probably take on this job. And he said, yeah, that's great, but I'm in South Carolina right now. And I said, okay, well, I'll call you next week. And then the next week I called, but there was nobody on the line. Um, and then his cousin told me on Facebook that John D had been shot and killed in South Carolina. And I looked up the information and the only thing that was on the news was um, black man shot in the back in a trailer park in South Carolina, uncooperative with the police and died on his way to the hospital. I felt this incredible rage, incredible sadness because he was there for me to save my life, but I wasn't there for him. It was like reliving my own cheating over again, and I felt everything just open up. Antonius, I'm so sorry you lost your friend, John. He wasn't really a friend. I mean, he was a total stranger, and uh, he saved my life. And and that's what really um, frustrated me, right? Because this total stranger just went out of his way to save my life. And um, it was also that moment that I realized um, it's really painful to be shot. I can't. I don't want this to happen to the worst, my worst enemy. But it's also very painful to have somebody in your life be shot. It's almost like you're being shot too. Um, and that's why this is, you know, a real epidemic. The the shooting is an epidemic. It also spreads like a virus. You 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 shoot somebody you know, and the pain is delivered throughout everybody that that person knows, especially their family members and loved ones. Antonius, thank you so much for telling your story. You make it so real for us. Take care. Yeah, I'm so happy with Gag. Thank you so much for everything that you do, and thank you for posting Radio Gag. This is such an important show. <laughs> Thanks, Antonius. You're listening to Radio Gag, the Gays Against Guns show, here on listener-sponsored, commercial-free radio, WBAI. We are here every Tuesday afternoon at 2.30 p.m., bringing you the latest from the gun violence prevention movement. Gays Against Guns is urging our listeners to keep free speech radio alive by rushing a tax-deductible donation to WBAI 99.5 FM. And become a Radio Gag BAI buddy. Visit WBAI.org or go to give to WBAI. That's G-I-V-E numeral two WBAI.org and support WBAI right now. Right now. And our next guest for Gun Violence Survivors Week, Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Jennifer Barry Haas. Listeners, 
We are so excited to be here today with Jennifer Barry Haas. She is the author of a wonderful book, Grace Will Lead Us Home, that's about the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church that took place in June of 2015. Now here we are, almost six years later, and it's Gun Violence Survivors Week, and Jennifer has agreed to be with us and to talk to us about this journey and about the survivors of that terrible day. Jennifer, welcome. Thank you for being with us today. Well, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. I'd like you to tell us about your work in Charleston as a journalist and the writing of the book. Well, I'm a reporter at the Post and Courier, which is a newspaper in South Carolina that covers the state and is based in Charleston, which is where I live and work and have worked for about 20 years. So Charleston is a a really beautiful historic tourist city on the coast, but it's also a city that has a a really important history as far as uh, slavery in America, as far as race relations and Jim Crow and and all of the much more ugly pieces of our history. Uh, So here in Charleston, I I have covered that for some time. And then when the shooting occurred, uh, I, like most of our newsroom, jumped into covering it. It was a tremendous, tremendous story, as you can imagine here. Um, And then after the, the initial coverage, maybe after that first month kind of passed, I continued to cover it and was uh, grateful to be able to meet the survivors and write about them. And then it just kind of progressed from there. That is what I wanted to ask you about next. Can you tell us about how the community is doing now? And are there any survivor stories that you can share? Well, our community, like any community probably in America right now, is is divided. Our state is very divided. Most people probably think of South Carolina as, as a very red state, which it is, generally speaking. But South Carolina also has a very large African-American population. It also has three uh, mid-level cities that tend to be much more democratic than the rest of the state. So we are like probably... Uh, most people listening today living in a place that's divided. Um, It's the events of the election. It's just, it's painful for everybody. And the the white supremacist overtones of the Capitol riot obviously hit particularly hard here and among the people affected by the Emanuel shooting. It's interesting, the the shooting, so the shooting's anniversary is in June, um, June 17th. And if you remember, uh, earlier last year, you had, um, in February, you had the killing of Ahmaud Arbery. In March, you had Breonna Taylor killed. In May, you had George Floyd's death. And then June comes, and it's the anniversary of the Emanuel shooting. And Charleston, like many cities, had tremendous protests And then we had one protest that turned into an outright riot in which businesses were looted, people were injured. Um, And the reason that to me was particularly interesting here versus other places was that I think it really surprised people here because after the church shooting, keep in mind the Emanuel shooting occurred just a few months after the uh, shooting death of Walter Scott in North Charleston, which is a neighboring municipality. So you had Walter Scott, the city stayed calm or the region stayed calm. Uh, then you had the Emanuel shooting and the area stayed calm. And people attributed that to a couple things. Uh, one being uh, the family's willingness to forgive in the case of Emanuel. And uh, in the case of Walter Scott, the family's willingness to wait and let the justice system play out. Um, 
So we didn't see big riots after that, after those things. Uh, and many people, particularly the black community, uh, also attribute that to the fact that there was still this sort of plantation culture in which African-Americans were expected to absorb these tremendous wrongs without violence, to acquiesce, you know, with grace, um, and to kind of let bygones be, be bygones and to forgive and sort of let the white people move on from whatever it is. And that narrative really became much more important as the years went by. So by the time George Floyd was killed and those protests uh, began, the fact that they became violent, I think, surprised a lot of people, especially in the white community. Uh, I think it surprised fewer people in the black community, but nonetheless, it was uh, something of a first, really. And so I mentioned all that because that was the environment of the fifth anniversary of the church shooting. So uh, when I went to revisit some of the survivors and family members I had, particularly those I hadn't spoken to in a little while, it was interesting. I went um, to the home of Felicia Sanders, who was in the room during the shooting. She played dead with her little granddaughter. Her son was shot and killed on one side of her, and her elderly aunt was killed on the other side of her. So you cannot imagine somebody who's been through uh, a more traumatic incident. It was just, I just can't even go there. And Felicia, when I got to her home, was watching on CNN the, um, the, the protests around the country. And we started talking and she compared the years since, uh, since the shooting as pulling um, like a heavy truck and how every day she felt like she was taking these steps, trying to move this heavy truck. And she would sometimes take a step and make a little bit of progress, but the truck was so heavy and sometimes she felt like she was going backward. But that, that, that in my mind, just really, I could feel what she meant by that, that with all of the events around the country, and not just the George Floyd protests, but other mass shootings, the Pittsburgh synagogue shooting being one in particular, because that was also committed by a white supremacist. I could really understand what that felt like to feel like you're always trying to make progress, always trying to make progress, and yet all this stuff is going on, constantly uh, revisiting that trauma. So Felicia and her husband Tyrone talked about what it was like to see the country still dealing with these kind of racial divisions, and her husband Tyrone mentioned that at work, there had been a man who posted a very offensive statement on social media. So there he was at his own job dealing with it. Uh, and I wish that people um, could just think about how all of this feels to people like Felicia and Tyrone, who are um, already dealing with so much and now um, are watching the country sometimes just seeming to not make progress on these issues. Um, but I would say on the flip side, uh, to use them as sort of a, um, a microcosm of what I've seen among a, a lot of people in the stories, they find a great deal of uplift in, um, in positive work that they're doing. They and their daughter, Shireen, uh, run a, a foundation in Tawanza, her son's name, that raises money to provide scholarships. Um, they have an... Um, um, like an internship ambassador kind of program. They do all of these things to help carry on Tawanza's name in a positive way. And I see that among many of the family members affected by the shooting also, um, where that positivity really helps, feeling like they're doing something in their loved one's name and also something that gives back to the community. Another one of the survivors, Jennifer Pinckney, now, Jennifer, uh, she was the wife of the pastor of the church who was killed. 
she was not in the room. She and her little daughter were in the pastor's office. She was a, a librarian, so she was working on lesson plans and her daughter was eating snacks. Um, when the shooting started, she had the wherewithal to ferry the little girl into the adjoining secretary's office and hide under a desk. And they uh, survived the shooting that way. And Jennifer's way of, of coping with her day-to-day -day life now without her husband was to try to keep things as normal as possible. She went back to work. Uh, she kept the girls in their normal dance routines. They're very big into dance um, in their normal schools just to keep their lives as routine and normal as possible while everything was in such upheaval. And it was really interesting when I talked to Jennifer uh, close to that anniversary, she told me that for the first time because of the pandemic, she was at home for long periods and she had finally started going through her husband's stuff. He had lots of books in particular. He loved to read. And she was finally finding the strength to, in those quiet moments, go through his things, which she hadn't done. I'm speaking here. I've had the privilege to talk today to Jennifer Barry Hawes and bring this to you listeners. And we also have some copies of your wonderful book, Grace Will Lead Us Home. And we'll talk about that in a few minutes. But thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Today we have a special premium when you become a WBAI buddy in the name of Radio Gag. We'll send you a copy of Grace Will Lead Us Home by Pulitzer Prize winning author Jennifer Barry Hawes. Go to give to WBAI.org. That's give numeral to WBAI.org or call 516-620-3602. That's 516-620-3602. You know, Jennifer is such a generous person. She is donating these books to us. She's also giving the proceeds from the book to a scholarship fund for young journalists of color. Oh, that is so cool. Well, to find out more about becoming a member of GAG, please go to gazeagainstguns.net or follow us at gazeagainstgunsny on both Facebook and Instagram and gag no guns on Twitter. For more info on how to attend member meetings, which are every other week, check us out on our social media platforms. Our next meeting is Thursday, February 4th at 7 p.m. Eastern. Well, that was such a great show. I'm really excited to be at this new time slot. It's so cool. We're going to be having gun violence prevention mm -hmm. groups regularly featured here at this time on this station. So that will be a great mouthpiece for the gun violence prevention movement. Thanks for joining us. We leave you, as always, with our fabulous political singing quartet, Sing Out Louise, with their now famous rendition of Amazing Grace. Take it away.